You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 3rd, 2006. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. With me tonight are Bob Novella. Hello. Rebecca Watson. Hey. And Perry DeAngelis. Righto. So, happy Cinco de Mayo, everyone. Or almost Cinco de Mayo. Trace de Mayo. <laughs> by, by the time this is, this is published... It's a tough date. I know. What, it's like, it's when's like the 4th of July? July. And I always forget. <laughs> <laughs> but then speaking of Mexico, Bob, we'll do a quick segue. You were uh, recently on a Mexican cruise. Yes. And you had a run-in with pseudoscience on the cruise ship. Is that right? Yeah, it was, yeah, a little, it was a little discouraging. Uh, overall, though, I, I must say the cruise was fantastic. Everything was awesome from the food, the service, the amenities, uh, the, the ports we stopped at in Mexico were all great. And uh, especially, did you see any of those wrestlers with the masks? No, I did not. I was looking for them. Couldn't didn't see anybody. Like Nacho Libre. <laughs> I love those guys. Oh, I yeah, can't wait yeah. for that movie. Um, <laughs> one of the high points, of course, was the casino on board, uh, in which I won a thousand dollars playing blackjack. Yeah, we talked about that last Yay. week because Evan won gambling last week too. And how much? Thirteen hundred, I think. Ooh. Yeah, that's nice. right. Yeah, I'm like a slot machine. So right. um, my biggest problem, as Steve said, it wasn't the seasickness, and uh, it wasn't uh, not getting to the top of that damn rock wall that they had on board, but it was the pseudoscience. I, cu- I couldn't believe it. I went, I went into the gym, and uh, they had a, a fat-burning seminar, and uh, so I was waiting for that. I looked at some of the brochures they had and, and listened to this woman, uh, this trainer, who was talking about how to lose fat, and I just, I just couldn't believe what, what she was, what she was saying. Well, I, I was hoping she'd say, I guess the obvious stuff. You know, you want to lose fat, you've got to get more active, you've got to, you've got to eat less, and just all the obvious stuff that actually takes some, some effort and, and not that much money. But she was really going off on, on the whole idea that you're, in order to really burn fat, you've got to, you know, you've got to remove the toxins from your, from your body. And uh, she said some, she said... The toxins being Twinkies. Right, right. <laughs> so she said things, and Steve, maybe you could uh, address some of these things, some things that I never heard before. She was saying that your liver uh, cannot properly metabolize fat because the fat cells have around them water. Well, that's not very surprising, but also uh, not only water, but acid. I assume she meant lactic acid. But uh, and because of that, the liver has limited access to to your fat cells, and these toxins have to be removed before uh, before it can be metabolized. That's just that's just pure nonsense. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I and, mean, the, and, the liver is the, the biochemical factory of the body. It does. There is a, a portal venous system which basically drains nutrients and things absorbed through the gut directly to the liver, so it gets passed through the liver before it goes to the rest of the body. And that's where the fat and cholesterol and everything, a lot of that does get metabolized. Fat-soluble, whatever, chemicals or toxins, absolutely can get metabolized by the liver. That's just, you know, mumbo-jumbo, what she was saying. Yeah. Bob, did you jump forward and start shaking the water? You know, I was, I definitely uh, had a skeptical attitude and, and asked questions and stuff, but I didn't really go to town on her because... Because base and I, I knew it was all it was all junk, but I really didn't have facts, you know, really hard facts to say. Hey, what about A, B, C, and D, and 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 all this stuff? So basically, well, she didn't have hard facts. No, she either, she didn't so. either. But I didn't really want to refute <laughs> her to stop unless her. I really had uh, some some good stuff uh, to to back me up. I just have kind of like you knew it. You knew it didn't sound right, but you didn't have the facts at your fingertips to counter point by point. Right, so I, d- yeah. I took I took good mental notes because I knew I was going to discuss it and research it after the cruise and stuff. But there was other things that didn't end there. I, I grabbed all their brochures that I could find and everything, and they they're offering they were offering some stuff that was really that was really out there. They just I got a list of a couple things that they were offering there. They had something called they had a special massage that included shiatsu, reflexology, and aromatherapy in a package. They 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 referred to these as cultural touches. Now, I'm not sure what they were getting at by calling them cultural touches, but it's obvious baloney. <laughs> they also had, they also had uh, chakra, chakra stone therapy. And let me give you Chakras a Chakras are just a, a life force bit. 
Right. Let me just read you what it says here in the... Um, Deepak, uh, <laughs> <It's>, Deepak Chopper. <laughs> it says in Bali, it's believed that stones are filled with the vitality and energy of the water that flows over them in an eternal stream. Harnessing these properties, we bathe the stones in warm water, anoint them with spicy aroma of the Orient, and blah, blah, blah. And then using aromatherapy techniques to release muscular tension. Now, all you get all that, 50 minutes, $120. Nice. It's a nice Okay, racket. now here's – now here's, it's here's have you guys ever heard of this? This, uh, this is called – let's see. Ionotherapy. Ionotherapy is a figure corrective and firming therapy from France. It's a unique detox treatment which, which works with stimuli and algae to reduce cellulite and fatty deposits from the stomach, thighs, and buttocks in women in the stomach region in men, you will lose, get this, three to eight inches of, ex- of external toxins in one session. You know what? Do you know what removes cellulite really well? Uh, a sharp blade. Cheese grater? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing removes cellulite. Anything that claims it removes cellulite is bogus. I mean, just lose weight, lose fat, and your, your cellulite will be less noticeable. I mean, that's really the only thing you could do. You could lose three to eight inches of toxins. Huh? That's a lot of toxins. Yeah. What does that mean? Three to eight inches of toxins. Yeah. I, thought... I mean, does that mean that they they measure your waist, your legs, and your arms, and your neck? And if they all go down an inch, then you've therefore you've lost eight inches. I mean, is it one location or is it multiple? Oh, it's locations? Pro- probably the added up to make it sound yeah. more impressive. So um, yeah. Well, you know, there's a there's a the alternative medicine gurus and quacks have a few shticks. They really only have two or three themes, and everything is pretty much a permutation of those themes. One theme is just the life energy, the life force, and doing something to improve the flow or balance of it. Another one is nutrition. That's always a big one. You know, nutrition... Nutritional deficiencies cause everything, and you can cure anything with good nutrition. And another one is toxins. Your body's not working because it's being assaulted ex- out from the outside by toxins, and you could make anything better by getting rid of the toxins. That's all. You know, and the uh, it's not. This is not surprising at all because the um, the spa industry, uh, which you know for hundreds of years has been on the cutting edge of pseudoscience, ha- is you know caters to. Wealthy people with lots of disposable incomes, uh, who are you know enamored of these you know touchy feely feel good kind of you know treatments, who are motivated to believe all these pie in the sky claims. So it's just a it's a marriage made in heaven. Yeah, but one one other thing, I went to the uh, the catalog the woman gave me was for products called um, it's E L E M I S Elemis, and they've got. All sorts of stuff from creams and lotions and all sorts of things to help detoxify yourself. So it's a little bit unique in that they're not saying fast for a week, um, just eat strawberries for seven days. They they actually have these um, these creams and things to help detoxify yourself. So it's a, they're, the products are a little unique in that regard. But I also in the fine print on the website it says in addition, try to drink at least eight glasses of water a day to flush your system, blah, blah, blah. Exercise a few times a week, concentrating on affected areas. Eat a healthy, balanced diet, including fruits and vegetables. Now, to me, and we've, we've all seen these things before, but to me, that's like, that's like telling somebody with a tumor on their kidney, take my special anti-tumor pills, bathe, bathe in my alien rock bath, and in addition to this, have surgery to remove the tumor. Right. You know, it's and like one okay. of those will work. You know, right? And then they usually roll it together with some basic common sense advice. You know, stay well hydrated, eat a good meal, and get some activity. You know, and that makes them seem like they're holistic or they right. know what they're talking about. So spend hundreds of dollars on these worth- worthless things, and but also do these common sense things that we know work. Right. Well, I'm taking a cruise to Alaska in ten days. I will keep Are my you? eyes open for such cultural you, anomalies. You will see it. You will absolutely see it. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure I will. Tell us all about the cultural touch. <laughs> yeah. Right. Indeed. Maybe Indeed. they'll have some uh, ancient Eskimo recipe healing <laughs> modalities available for you. It's possible. From the Inuit, we should say. That's right. That's right. Well, let's talk about some Bosnian pyramids. I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard about this. Uh, so a self-styled archaeologist by the name of S- Sammy Osmanagic claims that he has discovered a ziggurat-style or step-style pyramid in Bosnia. That's in, and this pyramid is in fact larger than the the largest pyramid at Giza in Egypt. The he first noticed it from photograph. I mean photographs of this area, this town in Bosnia, and there's a a mountain, Visosica. 
I call it a hill. Yeah, a hill. You're, it's, it's more of a hill <laughs> that is shaped kind of pyramid-like, and as hills are known sometimes to be. as hills are sometimes. So he, he's now claiming that he's found proof or at least evidence from ex- excavating on the hill that it is in fact a man-made structure, a pyramid. Now, what's interesting about this claim is that the press has largely perpetrated this story or perpetuated this story, reported it without even a bit of skepticism, without a bit of background uh, investigation, without doing any investigative journalism whatsoever, or even even fact-checking or even like chatting with an expert, say, hey, is this on the level? They just report it. This is true. I mean, I I found credulous reports. A lot of them are the same. A lot of them are just reprints of AP, but um, credulous reports on Fox News, the New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, CNN, the BBC News, which is usually a little little bit better. They're all just saying just flat out as this is a straightforward archaeological story. Now, at first, you might think, all right, so there's a pyramid in Bosnia. Big deal. You know, it's not doesn't sound like that fantastic a claim. There are pyramids in other other places of the world. Although this would be, if true, the first pyramid discovered in Europe. So it would be significant for that. And Steve, who does he think built this pyramid? Well, there you go. So if you do a little, even a little bit of background, you ask those obvious questions, who is this guy? What's he claiming? Then you, you uncover a can of worms. So this guy, uh, Osmanagic, believes that the pyramid was built 12,000 years ago. Do you guys recognize the significance of the 12,000-year figure? The significance that 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 area was under ice at the time? Well, that's that's the scientific (laughs) significance of it. Oh. (laughs) The the significance is that 12,000 years is the alleged date of Atlantis, that Atlantis Uh, song. There you go. So (laughs) Plato writing 3,000 years ago said that it was 9,000 years prior to to his writing, so that would make it 12,000 years ago. He thinks the Atlantans built the pyramid and that the Atlantans are in fact aliens who came here from the Pleiades, you know, between 12 and 27,000 years ago. They were responsible for, you know, multiple ancient cultures, all of the ancient pyramids, Mayan culture. Yeah, a little culture. chariot of the gods Yeah, a little chariot you know? of the gods Yeah. What's unique about this is that he's combining these huge worlds of crap and he's bringing them together to form one huge ball I wouldn't of say crap. that's unique. I mean, there, there are, there are <laughs> other people who do that. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty ballsy, though. It, you know, to not only say that the the Atlanteans built the pyramids, he's not content to just stop right. there. No, you know where the Atlanteans came from? That's right, the, the Pleiades, Pleiades. which is which is you know, <laughs> a lot of people lock in on the Pleiades. Um, uh, Billy Meyer he claims that his aliens are from the Pleiades as well. And I've heard that report. What's up with the Pleiades? Yeah, what's up with the Pleiades? In fact, the Pleiades are probably the the last place aliens would come from because that is a birthplace of very new and young stars. There wouldn't have been enough time for any like life to evolve in the Pleiades. Yeah, the Pleiades. It's, it's a group, I believe, of seven seven visible stars that are gravitationally related. They're also called the Seven Sisters, I believe. Right. Um, and it's just oh, a yeah. famous yeah. grouping of stars. You know, it sounds you know what, nice. You know, you know why they pick on the Pleiades? Because the name is cool sounding. Right. Right. Exactly. It is and that's it. That's the only reason. And they're, they're visible, too. They're naked eye visible. So anyway, if you read this guy's website, I mean, he has this elaborate you know, mythology and fantasy about you know, who built this pyramid and about worshipping of the sun and how we're destined to become in harmony with the sun's vibrations. I mean, he really goes off into la-la land. And you would think that any reporter who just like did a Google search on this guy's name in five minutes would see that he's a complete fruitcake. And, and but apparently no journalist did this. Now the only report that I read that was skeptical of this was from Archaeology Magazine. Now of course they were appropriately you know offended at at this whole affair. They're planning an and and um, detailed expose in the, their upcoming issue, but they did write sort of a quick debunking of it uh, that you can... The problem is that nobody reads Archaeology Magazine. Yeah. Everybody reads the New York well, Times. Yeah, and you know, if you if you go to Google and you search for Bosnian pyramids, you still, you're still going to come up with all of, not only this crazy guy's website, but also you'll come up with the original news right. stories from the BBC and ABC News with no correct. There's even Bosnian period 
Pyramid.com. I mean, the, the guy has his own website. Yeah. You're right. And then buried in there somewhere might be the archaeology article saying, oh, yeah, by the way, this is all bogus. And maybe, hopefully, eventually, there'll also be a little link in there to this podcast where we discuss how bogus it is. But, yeah, that's right. Uh, but very, very, very little skepticism about this. And I think eventually it will, the news cycle will catch up with this. It'll be behind the times, you know, by weeks or months. But eventually the news cycle will catch up with, but by the way, this is all bogus. But by then it'll be in the popular consciousness it'll it'll be a permanent fixture too late. In, you know it'll be too in, late in the pseudoscience the halls of pseudoscience you can get you can get anything in print if you got the guts to claim That's right. it right now the so, other little wrinkle to this other than the absolute falling down of the press is that this this hill uh, is actually has a lot of legitimate um, archaeological sites on it. it. There was a Roman occupation there, a Paleolithic, you know, occupation. And in fact, as as Rebecca mentioned, at the time he alleges this pyramid was built, there was maybe a hundred hunter gatherers with stone tools living in the area. You know, there's no way did they have the resources to build the pyramid. And, and this guy is basically tromping over this legitimate archaeological site. So a lot of people are trying to get him to stop, you know, before he destroys all the... He wants to basically remove all the dirt from this hill. He thinks there's going to be a pyramid underneath. Um, but the city of uh, Sarajevo, which is nearby, and, and the, uh, the federal government in Bosnia are supporting him because they want this to attract tourism. You know, they don't care if it's true or not. They just know it's bringing in the tourist dollars. So that's that fight's going on right now. Now, his recent... Findings that are that what made this you know, hit the news cycle. He found some rocks or something that looked like they're man-made, and he claims that this is some part of the outer wall of the pyramid. He's probably just digging up some legitimate archaeological sites, whatever from the from Roman structures or whatever. Uh, I mean, there, again, there are known stuff up there. I mean, either he's completely misinterpreting natural natural formations, or he's just discovering older. You know, legitimate runes, just not you know, twelve thousand year old pyramid. So incredible. I think I need to come up with a crap claim yeah, like yeah. that and see if I can get on. Be a lot more famous BBC. doing that than than skepticism. I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's for sure. I think maybe I'll try it. I, I I'll come up with the exact opposite of skeptics. <laughs> be like side chicks, maybe. <laughs> we'll do an experiment. I'll see how far that goes. Yeah. Oh yeah, if you do yeah, if you did side chicks, forget it, that would be that would be a hit. Be a yeah, big that'd hit. be big. Yeah. Well, we. Uh, Let's move on. So we have a lot of email um, and some excellent questions we've been getting in email. So I want to try to cover um, a few of those this week. The first question comes from Elias Luna in Bronx, New York, from nearby. He writes, I have a couple of questions which I would love to hear you guys discuss. What's your view on Michio Kaku's view of the universe as a multiverse, that we are nothing but a bubble in a sea of bubbles? I believe it's pronounced Michio Kaku. Is it Kaku? I, I believe. If there is a so-called multiverse, when did it begin? I'm not speaking of our universe because we all know the universe began with the Big Bang. But let's say there is a multiverse. What is beyond a multiverse and beyond what's beyond a multiverse and etc.? You see, it's a, it's a paradox. The only way to escape is to say there's always been something somewhere literally for infinite and will be. So there is no end to or beginning in the grand scheme of things. And if there is an infinite amount of universes or multiverses there... There's an infinite amount of civilizations. Uh, and then he goes on along that. He basically that that's his question. He asked a couple other questions, but uh, so let's let's talk about that first, Bob. You want to you want to start? Well, yeah. His main question in the beginning is, um, you know, when if there is a multiverse, when did it begin? And you really can't ask that question because by definition, you have you have no contact to any of these other bubble universes, you know, within, you know, within the multiverse or, right. or metaverse. And so, I mean, so how can you determine how old it is? I mean, our universe could have been created 15 billion years ago, but it might be, a, you know, a baby compared to, to other universes. So, or we could be the first universe in a bubble universe. So you really can't know, you know, how old this multiverse might be. You, you just can't get outside of your universe by, right. by definition. Right. And just to clarify, that's because by definition, our universe is everything that we can interact with. Anything that could affect us, everything that we can affect, everything that we could see is by definition part of our universe. So um, from a theoretical point of view, another universe that was part of a grander multiverse would be forever inaccessible to us. Right. And and even imagine if somehow you could you can contact another bubble universe within the multiverse even that wouldn't help you because who knows how who knows 
you know, how old that universe is and how long that bubble has been around. You'd have to literally examine every one and find out what the oldest is and say, okay, this is how old the right, multiverse right. is. So it's really inconceivable. The other possibility is that the, and, and Stephen Hawking wrote about this, that the the um, age of the of the universe or the multiverse may be finite but unbound. It's kind of a hard concept to get across, but it's kind of like the, the surface of a sphere. It's finite. The amount of space that it occupies is finite, but there's no really there's no beginning or end that you could point to. It's continuous. It's yeah, there's, there's no specific boundary, but it is finite. So the the time dimension of our universe may be the same thing. Maybe we didn't have a beginning and we won't have an end, even though the amount of time that we that it occupies could still be finite. So does that mean we're going to we're going to get around to the beginning again. It, I, I don't point. know. I don't know. I mean, it's, you t- when you're starting to talk about cosmology like that, I mean, whenever physicists write about that kind of cosmology, they always say something to the effect, you could really only express these ideas in like 12-dimensional de- derivative calculus, but I'm going to try to sort of paraphrase in English. <laughs> so, I mean, these are, these are concepts that you can't really even understand except on a very... Um, sophisticated mathematical level, so who knows what it all really means? But the, the, oh, this is also, by the way, Kaku is the guy who was a, he was one of the co-originators of string theory, right? That's what it says on his website. Anyway. Okay, okay, I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if he was uh, one of the originators. So what is the what is the point of positing the hypothesis? That's then? exactly what I was going to get to next, Perry. It was it's this is all very interesting. But unless you can derive from these notions a testable hypothesis, some way to test it, then it doesn't really enter the realm of empirical science. Uh, at best, it's a, it's a mathematical construct, uh, and it's just a mathematical theorem. Now, you know, mathematical theorems can be the beginning of a scientific exploration or a scientific investigation. It could say, well, here's a model that's internally consistent and you know, is consistent with what we observe, but you still have to then test it against something. You have to find some way to, to, to find out if it's actually real or not. And no one's been able to figure out a way to test string theory or the multi-universe theory or any of these other sort of big, you know, ultimate cosmological questions. So at the, at the moment, they still lie in the realm of theoretical mathematics and not empirical science. So let's, let's uh, go on to the second email. This one's a lot shorter this one is from Dan Hanch in California, and he writes, Is there a limit to the amount of mass that a black hole can consume? Why don't the supermassive black holes in the center of galaxies gobble up all the surrounding highly dense stars, gases, etc.? Let me grab that one again, Steve. Oh, go ahead, Bob. If that's all right. Um, I, I know of no limit, and I can't think of why there would be a limit. Um, if you just keep feeding a black hole matter... Uh, there's no reason why it's just not going to just keep sucking it up. Now I've heard, I've I've read estimates of black supermassive black holes that have millions of solar masses, and of course the solar mass is you know the the you know the matter equivalent to uh, in our sun. Um, that's generally how they rate them by by solar masses. Right. I've seen them listed as millions of solar masses and even billions. But recently, uh, they they found a supermassive black hole that is generating energy at the rate of 20 trillion suns. I've never I've never heard an amount that that huge. I ne- they never went into the trillions. I've only seen billions, but 20 trillions is truly st- staggering. That's a lot yeah, of suns. Was that part of the recent the recent discovery Bob that some black holes generate more energy than they consume? No, that that's unrelated to the unrelated to Hawking radiation. Yeah. Um uh, are, you about, are you talking about free energy there? <laughs> Yeah, are you saying we could have black hole-powered cars <laughs> yeah. someday? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> I, that theoretically, would be I mean, that's, that was a, it was a recent discovery that's also been you know on a lot of the news sites recently <laughs> of so-called green or energy-efficient black holes. Um, the but the implications of that obviously are are unclear. So so I don't think there's any limit. I mean, a black right. hole could conceivably. Um, hold the entire universe worth of matter. There's no reason why I couldn't do that. So there is no limit. Um, the other question that he had was, you know, why doesn't it just keep on sucking up everything? Uh, p- people seem to think that black holes, I mean, they do have immense gravitational pull, but they seem to think that their reach is just, 
you know, beyond uh, what anything else would mass has. But that's not true. If our sun turned into a black hole in the, at this moment, I don't see any reason why the Earth wouldn't still continue to orbit around it. It wouldn't necessarily increase its gravitational pull and right. suck us in. Now, of course, it would have an event horizon and things like that. It had all, it'd have all these wacky features of a black hole, but it doesn't mean it's going to reach out any farther than, uh, than anything else with that much um, gravitational pull. So, I mean, generally a black hole will clean out the area around it and uh, it'll be, it'll, it'll, you know, create and produce lots of energy, you know, in the form of x-rays and things, uh, things that, you know, it's not leaving the black hole. It's, it's just yeah. being created and emitted before it crosses the event horizon. So once it sweeps out that area, then the black hole becomes quiescent and, uh, and pretty much just waits around for, for more matter to slowly get a little closer and closer and closer. Right. So it really is, it's more like a hole and not like a vacuum. Some people seem to think that it's it kind of acts as like a sucking. Right. Device, well, it's, it, it's really no yeah, more than any other object right. with similar gravity, basically. Right. Exactly. And, and the gravity still falls off as the square of the distance, which is right. Exactly. That's that's not uh, violated big. with a black hole. Uh, and also, you could the way another way to think about it is that well, it kind of is sucking in everything that's around it, but th that's close to it, as you say. But also, you know, things are really far away in in the galaxy in outer space, and there's still the speed of light that can't be violated. So. You know, even if things do move towards it, the the, the uh, gravitational pull of a black hole, it would take a long time to to draw in things that are very very far away. Right, and beyond a certain distance, it's you're essentially it, it's just not there to you gravitationally because you know you, once you go a certain distance away, I mean you you would orbit around it, but it wouldn't draw you in. A, a closer question. This one is regards the origin of life. This one is from. Jeremy Freeman from Springfield, Illinois. Jeremy writes, I've recently discovered your podcast and just got caught up to your most recent episode. Uh, I'm disappointed that now I have to wait for you to release a new one, but you guys put on a great show, very interesting and entertaining. Well, thanks. In one of your podcasts and in your article, The Star Child Project, that's an article, by the way, that you could find on the Ness website on our articles page. You referred to a point that Carl Sagan made and said that it would be incredibly unlikely that human and alien DNA would be compatible because it would be from two completely different evolutionary genetic code sequences. I agree with that line of thinking, but it got me thinking about a related question that maybe you could shed some light on. If I understand correctly, we share a genetic code with every other for known form of life on Earth. That is correct. Therefore, we assume that an alien life would form would have a genetic code from its planet of origin. What prevented multiple starting points of life on Earth? I mean, why is there only one set of genetic code? Why on a planet as hospitable to life as Earth wouldn't life have started from multiple points? Why doesn't life spark even now to create a new random microbe with different code to start a new evolutionary chain? I would like to know if scientists have attempted to answer this in the past and what the conclusions or theories were. Without an answer to that question and no evidence that shows that this has happened and that life died out, the likelihood of life on other planets de decreases dramatically, at least in my mind. I'm not ready to go to the, to the creationist route, but without a good answer, it's really bugging me. We've got one on the cusp here, guys. Yeah, we, we need to, to draw him in. him back and save him <laughs> from the creationist. So let me, let me start with this one. So th it is true that all life on Earth shares the same genetic code, and what we mean by that is the DNA sequence, you know, DNA has four base pairs, like four letters to the alphabet, and each sequence of three base pairs codes for a specific either amino acid, and there are a few that are that regulate the, the transcription of that. Like, for example, they maybe uh, tell the transcription process to stop at a certain point. So that's the code. Which, which three letters equal what amino acid? There is absolutely no reason, by the way, why any two different species on this planet would have the same genetic code, except because of heredity. heredity. Um, so therefore, we can conclude that all life on Earth is related to it, to itself, to each other. Life that evolved on another planet, first of all, we wouldn't even know that they would have DNA. I mean, they may have some completely other molecules serving as their uh, genetic code. Could be a, tri a triple helix. Whatever. It, it could be proteins. You know, it could be something other than than deoxyribonucleic acid, right? It could be some other chemical compound. Uh, and even if it was something like DNA, I mean, there's no reason why 
they would have randomly come up with the same genetic code, the same, you know, three letters equaling the same amino acid. They may, in fact, use a different, we use 20, you know, all life on Earth is derived from 20 amino acids. They may have a different sort of a set of amino acids than, than what we have. They may use some that we don't and not use some that we do. Now, in terms of why, you know, has life arisen multiple times on this planet and why doesn't it? Well, one, you know, one reason is that the conditions which were suitable for the, or the origin of life on the early planet are no longer present. For example, there probably was a lot more electrical storms early on. Uh, there were there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. Um, there were probably lots more ammonia and methane and, and other compounds. So the the early Earth, which may have been more suitable for the generation of life, is not the conditions that exist now. Um, also, once life did arise, it would use up a lot of the uh, resources in the environment. It would basically fill all the niches, you know, pretty quickly in on the planet, and that would crowd out any new life trying to get a foothold. So whichever life arose first would have probably just crowded out any other later you know, uh, attempts at life arising. Also, interestingly, there is one form of life that has a slightly different genetic code than everything else. Do you guys know what that is? I know Bob does. The fundamentals? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, not a bad guess. It's actually mitochondria. Yeah. The mitochondria, which are organelles inside of our cells, they're the, the energy factories of our cells, they were probably a primitive form of bacteria that then formed a symbiotic relationship with larger cells. Uh, and they have a slightly different genetic code than does all of, other, all of life. So probably mitochondria represent a very early side branch of the, of the branch of life that led to all existing life today. It's possible that they were a completely separate branch of life, but probably not because they're, they're still too similar. The, the genetic code's not totally randomized. It's, it's very similar to other life, just there's a few differences. So, but what that also implies is that, well, you know, there could have been multiple origins of life, multiple early branching points with different genetic codes, but only one branch survived, and the, the one that is later gave rise to all of life. So the the early sort of chaotic biological systems on on this world, you know, they may have been competing and one branch survived. And that that's that's why we only have one genetic code at this point in time. So those are some possible answers. Probably the most far out answer, which is still a possibility, is that life on Earth was actually seeded from outer space. You know, if a if a meteorite landed on Earth that had some templates of DNA or or whatever that could have then seeded this planet with life. And, and of course, if life on this planet arose from at one point of seeding, it would all have the same genetic code. That's still very hypothetical, but that's another sort of possibility compatible with that. So interesting question. Um, there, and yeah, there's quite a bit of, uh, of speculation that is compatible with what we see. We received another email from Kim who asks... Uh, please talk more about alternative medicine on your podcast. I know that's one of your primary interests, and I'm dying to learn more since I know so little about it. I have a coworker who believes very strongly in diagnosing people's ailments by reading the iris of the eye. I believe, I believe it is the iris, yes. Iridology, I think he calls it. Yes, it is, it is called iridology. That's it. Do you know anything about that? I had thyroid cancer, and he told me he could see it a mile away in my eyes. I thought he meant I looked sad or something. And was, in, and was stunned when he explained what he meant. Nice of him to tell me after the fact. <laughs> Thanks again, Kim. Well, yes, I'm very familiar with iridology. Iridology uh, is a pseudoscience which basically involves making diagnoses by reading the color variations and flecks of color in the iris of the eye. It was, this is, was cooked up um, about 150 years ago in, in the mid-1800s by a Hungarian physician called Ignatz von Pesli. I think that's <laughs> how you pronounce it. And he said he'd be, be based it on an anecdote where he, when he was a child, he found an owl who had broken his wing and he noticed a dark fleck in his iris. And when he fixed his wing, the dark fleck went away. And he said, hmm. So then he started looking at the irises of his patients and thought he could 
you know, correlate the flex with what diseases they've had. Sadly, he was wrong. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> now, this was popularized in the United States by Bernard Jensen, D.C., doctor of chiropractic, uh, who actually passed away in 2001. Terrible, um, terrible. He wrote, you know, several books about it. He was basically the leading American iridologist. He wrote, uh, for example, Nature has provided us with a miniature television screen showing the most remote portions of the body by way of nerve reflex responses. So what, what he and others, other iridologists believe is that the iris is connected to every other part of the body through nerve endings. And whenever any part of the body is diseased, those nerve endings will change the iris. Uh, so, and you can read that by looking at the iris. Of course, these nerve endings have never been discovered. You can you know, dissect the eye and, and, and then there's, there is no such structures. They just simply don't exist. And... There is absolutely not a single bit of science to support any of the claims of iridologists. I was reading an iridology website, and it's it's you know it's incredible uh, how they just make these bold-faced statements, which are completely false. Under what is iridology, they write, Iridology is the scientific analysis of patterns and structures in the iris of the eye, which locates areas and stages of inflammation throughout the body. So that's... First of all, it's not a scientific analysis because there's zero empirical evidence that there's any correlation between uh, the, what the, how the iris looks and any, any disease or health state. Uh, further, despite the fact that this is utter and unmitigated nonsense, uh, it has actually been researched to test the, the claims. Now, in um, 1979... 79, Bernard Jensen, again, the, this is like the um, leader of American iridology, so you can't claim this guy didn't know what he was doing in terms of iridology. And two other proponents failed a scientific test in which they examined the photographs of eyes of 143 persons. Uh, and, it, and basically, they, some of them had kidney, you know, clear-cut, proven kidney disease. The others were normal controls. And they could not do any better than chance just to say who had kidney disease and who didn't have kidney disease. Surprise, surprise. And there have been other studies you know, very similar where they're basically, it's, they do no better than guessing. In fact, there were a, it was one great study where they actually sent some iridologists photographs of like monkey eyes and glass eyes, and they couldn't even tell that they weren't actually human eyes. They were like <laughs> diagnosing the glass eyes. The main problem with iridology is it's not as funny as phrenology, reading the lumps on your head, so it never made it into the Bugs Bunny cartoons. That's true. That's, that's, that's the true. main problem with it. So, yeah, so Bugs Bunny was never able to ridicule iridology. <laughs> right. But uh, it basically what it comes down to, it's a cold reading. You know, the iridologists look at your iris, and they give you a, cold, a, a medical cold reading. And they also write that if you know, the, the, the changes may not show an existing disease – it just shows that you might have a predisposition uh, to a disease. So, of course, if they say, oh, I see, I see kidney disease in your iris and you don't have any kidney disease, they can say, oh, well, you, you might get kidney disease in the future. Or maybe your mother has kidney right. disease. So, I mean, does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the yeah. psychics do, you know. Oh, Absolutely. this isn't true of you? Well, it may be in the future. Just hold on to that. You know, that's something that may come true in the future. So they could never be wrong. That's right. But uh, th there, there is something that I um, learned about uh, irises that are they're very fascinating. Did you know that your iris is the most unique, you know, fingerprint, quote, unquote, for you, more so than even your DNA? Mm -hmm. the, the pattern that your iris makes is so unique, it's more unique than your DNA. And that, that's why the... Uh, well, the, technically, the, Bob, you can't be more unique because unique means one of a kind. So you're not using that term exactly correctly. Very good. Well, I mean, you could be a twin, and you could, and you're not unique, but still, your iris would be unique. Right. I know what you're saying. Right? There, there is there are more points of difference between the irises of two people than there are points of difference between their DNA. So right. Th that's what that's what you mean to say. But anyway, so let me let me read you that that is true, and then, and iris scans, you know, may become a, a a method of identification in the future. And the reason for that is because you well, it is now, they, it is now that's for true. biometric right. scanning. It's for if if you do one iris, it's unbelievably accurate. But if you do both irises, it's like one in twenty billion or right. fifty billion yeah. or something crazy. Yeah, well, that's because the reason why there's, there could be more detail in the iris than in your DNA is because our bodies are more complex once they develop than is encoded right. in the DNA. The DNA just has rules for how things develop. 
but the, you know by following those rules you actually can you can actually get more information than is in the DNA itself. It's why right. you know, our you... brains contain more information than our DNA exactly. does, right? Right, exactly. I do want to now. Last week we began the um, name that logical fallacy segment, and I want to continue that this week. I you know, and I was you know, reading through our list of logical fallacies. I also had written an article for the for the New England Skeptical Society. Again, it's on our website about logical fallacies, and I realized that we I really need to update it. So I've been doing that uh, for the past week or so, and you know, f- hopefully, fairly soon, I'll publish an updated article on arguments in general, premises, etc., and also a, a greatly expanded list of logical fallacies. Uh, I searched for other people's list of logical fallacies just to see what they contained. Some people have, I saw the longest list that I found was 43 different logical fallacies. We have our top 20 on the website. But actually when you read them, the vast majority of the new ones or the extra ones that are not on our list are really just subtypes or derivations of, of existing ones. So, you know, it depends on whether or not you want to lump various um, fa- fallacies into one sort of type or general type or you want to split out every, even find differences between them. So you can, the list could be longer or shorter depending upon that. But anyway... So keep an eye out for my expanded sort of description of logical fallacies. But while I was reading the iridology site, I do I thought one paragraph struck me. I thought that would be a good one to to try to identify a subtle logical fallacy. Now on this on this same site, and of course again we'll have the link for you. It it describes what how iridology works, what it shows, and there's also a paragraph on what iridology will not show. And let me read this for you guys and tell me if anything strikes you as as a logical fallacy. It says, iridology will not show or name a specific disease, but provides information about the body tissues which indicate tendencies toward conditions of disease, often before symptoms appear. Iridology will not reveal surgery performed under anesthesia as nerve impulses are discontinued. Iridology cannot locate parasites, gallstones, or germ life, but will indicate the presence of inflammation and toxic conditions. Um, it will not show pregnancy, as that is a normal function of the female body. So what do you guys think about that? Now, I admit you have to have that into a little bit of context of you know, the claims for and against iridology. Well, why do you think they go out of their way to say that you know, having, like having your kidney removed surgically won't, won't cause your iris to change, to reveal, for example, kidney disease? To cover their ass. <laughs> to cover their ass, exactly. Because wouldn't that be an obvious test of iridology? You know, if so, if I get my kidney whacked out, why don't I, why doesn't my kidney fleck show up? You know, right. So what 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 would you what name what logical fallacy do you think that is? That is special pleading. Wait, wait, wait! Yeah, you didn't is. give me a chance to think about it. <laughs> you got to be quicker than that. Rebecca. Come on, that's special pleading. All of these are special pleading. Pregnancy, the surgery. So why don't these things show up in iridology? You know, because they've been proven not to. And they say, oh, well, that's because under anesthesia, you know, the nerve impulses are discontinued, which is false, by the way. So it's also a false premise. Um, you know, you don't discontinue nerve impulses under anesthesia. Well, that doesn't mean anything. And they certainly don't anesthetize your eyeballs when you when you have your kidneys taken out. So that's just that's a false premise. But it's also just special pleading. There's no particular reason based upon anything that anyone is claiming about iridology that it wouldn't change your iris if other things would. Same thing with pregnancy. The fact that it's normal versus a disease state doesn't mean that you know, it wouldn't have an effect physiologically on some other part of the body, especially if it were intimately connected to it the way they argue that it is. So those are just, those are just forms of special pleading. That's all for the for the specific emails for this week. However, I did want to bring up next in a, a separate segment a discussion that in, is is in response to some emails that we've been getting. But I just want to basically lump these emails together into the, the bigger topic and discuss it. And that's basically what is the scope of skepticism? You know, what kinds of things does skepticism cover? And specifically, some people have asked us. What is the scope of our show? You know, what topics do we talk about or not talk about? And, you know, have we, have we do have we made specific decisions or choices about what kind of things we will talk yeah, about? I was hoping people could discern that by listening. Yeah, I mean, well, I, you know, t- to some degree, I mean, so but 
basically to lay it out, you know, our philosophy is, you know, what we call scientific skepticism. The earliest reference to that phrase that I have been able to find was um, Carl Sagan in The Demon Haunted World. But we basically use that to refer to our philosophy, which is the notion that all claims to truth, you know, should be to 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 um, factual truth should be subjected to appropriate scientific analysis, to uh, analysis for logic and evidence, uh, and that acceptance or rejection should be apportioned, you know, to the evidence. Uh, it is certainly dependent upon a naturalistic and materialistic philosophical worldview, which basically means we operate in a realm in which we deal with the material world functioning under under natural processes. We do not allow for sort of magic or supernatural explanations. Now, within the skeptical community, there's a bit of a, and I'm sure within philosophical circles, there's a discussion about whether or not science requires that we live in a naturalistic, materialistic universe, whether science can be used to prove that we live in a, in a naturalistic or materialistic world, or that science just makes the arbitrary choice to limit ourselves to that because, because that's how it works. And, um, and I think, in fact, we discussed this topic to some degree on, an, on a very, one of our early, early podcasts when, when Massimo Pellucci was on with us. And basically our position is that do, we cannot know, basically, if we live in a purely materialistic or naturalistic universe because any uh, hypothesis that deals with something outside of the natural world, that deals with the supernatural, uh, cannot be investigated scientifically. By definition. By definition. Now, this is where, not by choice. You know, some people have said, well, we choose to limit ourselves to the, to the natural and to... Uh, to uh, um, leave out the supernatural. It's not by. It's not a choice. It's by necessity. The the scientific methodology, scientific methodology, empiricism, requires that because supernatural causes, causes that are outside of nature, cannot be held to any kind of any kind of laws or any kind of restrictions. You know, like the the best example is God. You know. Does God exist or not exist? Well, that's not really a scientific question. If, if you define God as an all-powerful being that lies outside of the laws of our universe, you can never use the laws of the universe to prove that he doesn't exist. So you can never use any kind of empiricism or scientific method because what, whatever outcome of any experiment or observation you, you choose to make, you can always say, well, God intended it to be that way. There, there's absolutely no constraint you can put on it. Uh, so gods and deities are a matter of faith, and that is not our bailiwick. That's right. So you you could say that things questions that are outside of the realm of science are properly dealt with as matters of faith, and basically meaning that they're not knowable. You can only just have an arbitrary personal or subjective decision about those, but there is no sort of empiricism that you could bring to bear, and therefore. All we say is that that's outside the realm of science. It's outside the realm of scientific skepticism. It's important to define it as such, but we don't specifically de- deal with it. You know, honestly, we don't care what people believe. It, what we care about is the processes of logic and science. However, I think where people get confused is they say, "Well, so you don't deal with you know quote unquote religion," and we we clearly do deal with religion and with religious topics. We deal with creationism, for example. It's hard to get us to stop talking about creationism. But re- we deal with religion to the extent that it intrudes upon science. Right, when it crosses when, the line. Right. So if you say you can scientifically prove the existence of God, well, you're in the realm of science. Then we can address whatever arguments you're making that are within the scientific realm. If you say you have faith in God, well, good for you. But what could you say about that? You can't disprove someone's arbitrary faith. Uh, so we do deal with religious topics, and you know, fortunately, you know, the mo- modern religions freely trample on science and logic. So it's not like we have to restrict ourselves in any way. But you know, we also the other questions that come up are, well, do we deal with politics or with sociological questions? And again, you know, because this is our interests, this is where we think our talents lie. We, you know, we like to restrict our topics to ones that have some kind of scientific angle. 
Um, it, where politics intersects science, we'll talk about that, but not purely. Yeah, for politics in general, I've seen skeptics just tear each other's throats out because it's always, you know, you're not being skeptical enough about X or Y. It's true. And yeah. you, you can't, you just can't. It's true. It's, it's not. Emotions happen. intrude into all of this. And, you know, in my um, logical fallacy argue, I talk about this a little bit too, that um, there are some questions that require a value judgment, right? And whenever you have to make a value judgment, then you're outside of the realm of pure empiricism or objectivity. And those questions are inherently irresolvable because it comes down to some kind of personal choice that you make, some kind of personal judgment that you make. What things do you value, you know, to, in your life? So we, we don't deal specifically with those issues, and that's very much the realm of politics. You know, politics is about making those value judgments. We feel that politics should be informed by science, and that politics should not intrude upon science. And to that extent, we do talk about it. I know Chris Mooney, who was on our show, again, that he wrote the book, um, The Republican War on Science, and he defines, you know, his realm very much as the intersection between politics and science. And again, we those are issues that we address yeah, as well. In our own country, I wouldn't personally limit it to the Republican Party. I, I, our entire government is shockingly lacking in scientifically literate people. Right. I mean, that was, I was just giving that example because he was on our show, but you're right. I mean, every if you have a political agenda or a sociological agenda or a religious agenda, chances are you're going to put that ahead of logic and evidence, ahead of science. Uh, and if you know the, the social structures are such that you have the power to do so, you'll probably oppress the process of science. Uh, so, and that's we we feel that that is our our bailiwick, as you put it. That if whenever that happens, whenever anything intrudes upon science, then that's a, that is a, a topic that we will happily discuss. Well, you know, we discuss these other topics, by the way, faith, politics, very passionately. We just don't do it when we're wearing our skeptical hats, and certainly not during the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Right, right, right. Yeah, of course, in, personally, we have political opinions, etc. Just, it's just not part of the show, as interesting as they may be. So that should address, you know, those questions of, you know, we don't deal specifically with faith, we don't deal specifically with politics, but, you know, they they copiously intrude upon science and Whenever they do, we're there. Does anybody have any other observations they'd like to make about that before I segue to another topic? So let's move on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. So every week... I come up with three science news items or facts. Typically, two are genuine and one is fictitious. And I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to sniff out the fake. Uh, a couple of times, and I'm going to do it again this time, uh, I've instead of science news items, I've come up with common misconceptions. So what I'm going to do is I have three common scientific misconceptions. Two of these are... are are false, meaning two are, are actually misconceptions. One of the following statements, however, is true. Got it? So two, two, of these are, two of these are false and one is true. And you guys have to tell me which one is true. Ready? All right, so number one. Re-entering spacecraft are heated primarily due to friction with the atmosphere. Item number two. The sky is blue because air is blue. Item number three. The Earth's magnetic poles lie just beneath the surface near near the north and south geographic poles. Perry, why don't you start us off? So which one of those is true? Uh, you know, the uh, one that sounds uh, simplest and most true to me that I've always heard is the first one. Mm -hmm. That uh, spacecraft encounter tremendous friction by... Uh, the particles in the atmosphere and their tremendous speed. Uh, the other two, uh, you know, don't sound correct. I would say number one is true. Okay. Rebecca. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I didn't really thought of the sky is blue because the air is blue. Just, it's more complex than that. So, uh, and what was the third one? The again? Earth's magnetic poles lie just beneath the surface near oh, the north yeah. and south geographic poles. Yeah, I don't like the sound of that either. I'm going to go with there. 
number one is tr- is true. No, no, okay. Yes. Yeah, Bob, say the third one again. Magnetic poles. The that... Earth's magnetic poles lie right. just beneath the surface near the north and south geographic okay. poles. Okay, that is false. It's uh, they're a little bit away off of the uh, the geographic poles. Um, so they're they're not right there. The geographic. Oh, pole I, I, the, I, that's consistent with what I'm saying. Right. Right, that is false. So that's not my answer, right? That's false. Well, they're, they're not. I, I did not mean to imply very near. They're just near. They're not right on the north and south geographic poles. They're just nearby. Okay. Bob just wrings the joy out of these things. All right. <laughs> Calm down. Friction with the atmosphere. Yeah, that, that's a common misconception. It's not really friction with the atmosphere. It's because it's compressing the air in front of it. Which is then heating up, which is then transferring that heat to the object. So uh, a lot of times they show fiery meteors, you know, uh, the meteorites on fire in the ground. And generally that's not the case. Sometimes they can even still be pretty cold because um, it's really, they're not really heating up because of friction. It's because they're compressing the air. And sky is blue because air is blue. That is absolutely correct. That is true. Number two is the answer. All right. Let's let's start with number three. Uh, So Perry and... Rebecca both thought that number one was true, and Bob thinks, believes that number two is true. No, I know it. So everyone agrees <laughs> that number three is fiction, uh, that number three is a is a myth, and it is a myth, although not for the reason that you thought. So the the, the magnetic poles are are indeed allied. You know, near is a vague term, but it, it is quote okay. unquote near the north and south pole. It's not right on it. It's not near, meaning like feet away. It is, you know, miles away. Many, yeah, right. But I think, in fact, the, the north magnetic pole points somewhere in northern Canada or something. Uh, but the the bit about that which is incorrect is that they're not just beneath the surface. Right, yeah. They're actually deep within the Earth's core. And the reason why this comes up a lot is because if you look at, you know, high school science textbooks, they always draw the magnetic field of the Earth as if the magnetic lines are coming out of the surface of the Earth. And they're not coming out of the surface of the Earth, they're coming out of the core of the Earth. Well, I wouldn't, I don't think you need to go quite that far, though, Steve. Um, I don't think it's the actual core that's generating the magnetic field. I think it's, a, it's, the, it's the movement of the, of the molten rock the the molten elements that is that that are actually generating it. So I don't think you need to go quite to the core. You know, maybe you know the mantle or lower mantle. No, I that's think just... I, that's that's not what I read. So really, it is the core. It's not at the very center center of the Earth, but it is down. It is as deep as the core. Okay. Where, where if you if you actually had to draw the, the the bar magnet, which is a little bit inaccurate in any case, it would actually be, you know, short and within the Earth's core. So when you draw those magnetic lines, it should be close to the center of the Earth, not coming out of the surface of the Earth. Yeah, definitely not the surface, but I don't think it quite gets to the core. I'm actually going to look look into that. But you, but I have a reference. Right. I have a reference for that read, that said the core. So that's okay. but it's it's de- it's not the surface, which is that's the right. common misconception. Okay. Perry and Rebecca thought that re-entering spacecraft are heated primarily due to friction with the atmosphere. You thought that was true. But apparently we're yeah, wrong. That is, that is incorrect, and Bob knew, had nailed this exactly. It is, in fact, due to compressing the air in front of it, which is you know, partly you know, why like the, the capsules are shaped the Compress way they are. Compress the air, thus creating friction. No. It's, no. Friction implies you know, rubbing one thing against the other. There is a little bit of friction, but it's, it causes an insignificant amount of heat. So you admit but, there's a little friction. Yes, I do, which is why I said was heated primarily, primarily due to friction with the atmosphere. Um, because there is a little bit of friction, but it is, it is far and away mostly due to compressing the air. And when you compress a gas, you heat it. And that creates the heat, which then heats the the tiles or whatever, the ablative surface, that uh, heat, the, basically you're transferring the momentum of the spacecraft to heat energy, which then goes away, and that's what slows it down. And number two, Bob is absolutely correct, is true. The sky is blue because air is blue. Uh, the common misconception is that it's due primarily to the scattering of light, and that, of course, that does take place, but um, it's more accurate to just say that, you know, the atmosphere, air, is in fact blue. Now, it doesn't 
look blue when we're looking through it the same way that a glass of water doesn't look blue. If you're looking through just a small amount of water, it looks clear. But if you look at the ocean, it looks blue, because you look that's what the color of water is. And the same is true of the air. You just have to look through a lot more of it before it'll, it, you can see the blueness of it. So when you're looking through the entire depth of the atmosphere against the black of outer space, you can see its blue color. But when you're looking across the room, you know, it just looks clear to you. Now, Steve, I don't think, I hope you don't intend to minimize the importance of Raleigh scattering. I, to me, the whole idea that the sky is blue because the air is blue is, is kind of like a more general way, kind of like standing back and saying, yeah, the sky is blue because the air is blue. It's a more general way to look at it. But still, Raleigh scattering is still a key component to why that's so. But it's like saying, you know, the, the rose is red and then start talking about, uh, you know, uh, molecules and frequencies and things. You don't really have to go... You don't. You don't have to be that technical. You can just say, you know, it's you know, it's reflecting, it's reflecting red light. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Just looking further at his explanation, I mean, he then goes on to say, I mean, if you do then say, then why is the air blue? Then you do have to resort to things like Raleigh scattering okay. to explain it. Well, Bob, good job. I think Bob gets Bob gets the credit for getting this one correct. So, and that is our show for this week. Bob, Perry, Rebecca, thanks for joining me again. Very welcome, good, very welcome. We'll see you all next good week. Good show, Steve. It's been a blast. Next week, we have Eugenie Scott on our show. Woohoo! Uh, she <laughs> is the foremost defender of evolution in this country. Offender? Foremost defender? Foremost oh. defender. Awesome. So we will, <laughs> she's very, we'll talk to her about she's great. creationism, intelligent design. It would be a good discussion. So until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society. For information on this and other podcasts, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Sleepless nights, slow burn days, problems, proofs, endless delays.